Well, good morning, Branch Church. Good morning, Branch Church family online. It's a blessing to be with you all this morning. If you're new, I'm Pastor Sean, one of the pastors here. It's a blessing to have you celebrate the Advent, the Christmas season with us. So there was a gentleman who attended Bible school in the Philippines, and he had noticed the atrocity that is the men's bathroom. He noticed that it was being neglected in the cleaning routine. So he eventually went over after a few days to the principal and said, hey, there's a problem. This needs to be fixed. Principal hears him out. He goes away. And then a few days later, he notices the bathroom's being cleaned right on. That's what I'm talking about. But as he looks closer, he's amazed. He said, is that? It is. It was the principal himself who was cleaning the bathroom. He thought the principal would have called the janitor, right? The janitor is supposed to do something like that. Not the principal, but he looked and it was the principal himself cleaning the men's bathroom. This world is like a gross men's bathroom. It reeks of the smell of sin and has the dirty grime of sinful hearts everywhere that we are and everywhere that we look. Who can deal with such a bathroom? Who wants to deal with such a bathroom? Who is able to clean and fix such a bathroom? We know the answer, God. Only the Lord God through our Lord Jesus Christ can fix that. And this is the amazing thing. In order to become our Christ, our Messiah that we needed, the Son of God, he became a servant. He became a slave, in a sense, just like that principle. Today, we're going to be looking at becoming Christ, and it's going to be a little bit more mindset of what he becomes than ontology. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the Son of God became man. He took on the fullness of a human being, all the weakness, all the infirmities, everything that constitutes a human being except for sin. We saw last week how he became poor, and he set aside willingly that kingly status that was his. Today, we're going to look at how he becomes a servant, how he becomes a slave, really and focusing on his mindset. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn with me to Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. In the New Testament, one of the letters of Paul, he's writing to the city, the Christians in the city of Philippi. This will be our main text this morning, and we will come back and forth to it, very similar to what we have done last week. Philippians chapter 2, we are picking up in verse 5. Paul writes, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Before we talk about what the Son of God became, we have to understand what the Son of God was. What was he? He was king. And as we look through the Old Testament, we see what kind of king is presented to us. We see in Psalm 24, God is the king of glory. We talked about that last week. The king of all majesty, of impressiveness, of status, of wonderfulness, of awesome, inspired, exalted beauty where you stop and go, wow, you're amazing. God is that king of glory. He's not just the king of glory. He's the king of this world, the whole world. He's the king of all supposed gods. 
He's the king over Israel. He is an everlasting king. He's never not been king. And he has an eternal, everlasting kingdom. For us to really grasp God's kingliness and his kingly power, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 10. This becoming will not hit home unless we first hit this into your hearts. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 10. Isaiah, inspired by the Spirit, he writes this, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those with young. God is coming. He's coming with power, with reward, and he's coming to rescue and take care of his sheep. Now what follows is going to be a series of rhetorical questions that are forced, I'm sorry, they are designed to force you to answer them with only one answer. And what is that answer? God, the Lord, there's nobody else. He says in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span that is like the span of a hand? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Rhetorical questions all designed to make you say who? The Lord. The Lord God is the one who does these things. Let's look at these examples in particular. Firstly here, we are going to be looking at creation and God's kingly power over it. The waters of the world, who holds it, figuratively speaking, in the palm of their hand? God does. Now, if you were to take your hand and cup it, go ahead and cup your hand. How much water do you think you could fit in there? Maybe a couple ounces? You might be able to slurp something out of there. And yet God holds all water on the earth. How much water is that? Well, according to How Stuff Works, this website I looked at, it said it's estimated that there's 326 million trillion gallons of water on the planet. That's 326 comma with 18 zeros followed after it. That's a lot. Oh, and does that count the animals in the ocean? I think so. There's some pretty big animals. Orcas and blue whales and sharks and dolphins will go smaller, jellyfish and seahorses. We'll throw them all in there. God holds it all in the palm of his hand. That's incredible. That's impressive. And then he moves from the waters and he goes now to the heavens. Let's look at the heavens. Who measures that with the span of his hand? The Lord does. Now, if you were to fly in an airplane from San Diego to New York, take you about five hours, traveling over 2,400 miles, going about 150 to 180 miles an hour. Five hours, you got a lot to do. You can read, you can watch something, you can witness to the person next to you, you can sleep, whatever it is you think you need to do in that moment. That whole time, that whole plane flight, you never get close to leaving the palm of God's hand. You never get close to even perceivably leaving the sovereign power that holds not only the earth, but all of creation in his hand. He moves on to dust. Let's talk about dust. Really, he wants to talk about dust? Okay, 
How much dust is there? Well, according to another website that I can't remember, there is 17 million metric tons of dust in the world. How they figure that out, I don't know. <laughs> but that's the equivalent of 17 million elephants or all the mass of every single person in America put together. Who knows there could be so much dust? Yet God knows, and he actually has measured it and knows exactly how much there is. Well, let's move to the mountains and the hills. There's some pretty impressive mountains in this world. We'll start in California. We got Mount Whitney, some 14,000 feet high. And if you start at the Whitney Campground, Whitney Portal, it's about 8,300 feet. And if you uh, really truck in it, it could take you about five hours to do it. Most people takes about eight to 10, maybe a half day just to get to the top. And yet what does God do? He holds it in a balance in his hand. Let's go to an even bigger one, Mount Everest, the China-Nepal border, 28,000 feet high, twice as high as the last one. Now, if you wanna to get to the top of this one and you wanna start at 17,000 feet, which is really high, it'll take you seven to 11 weeks, I read, to get to the top. That depends on how good you are, your equipment, and the crew that you're with. That whole time you're trying to ascend this big mountain just to get to the top, Lord willing. For God, the mountains are like a toddler taking a race car and doing this with it. They're so small because he holds it in the powerful kingship that is his hand. Who rules over creation with incredible power? God does. And these illustrations force us to go, wow, only God can do this. He briefly mentions in verse 13 and 14, who has measured the internal aspect and glory that is God? Nobody. Who has sat down and said, God, let me help you understand this. Let me, let me teach you how it goes. God has no equal. He's not on a team of other gods where they instruct him or tell him, or he needs to bounce ideas off of. He doesn't need it. He knows everything, as A.W. Tozer has said, instantly, effortlessly, and fully, for he is the Lord God. That's creation. We're gonna now move on to the nations. Let's look at God's kingly power in regard to the nations, verse 15. He says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon, the great forest that is Lebanon in this time, in this part of the world, all those massive, wonderful trees, they would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. It's not enough to offer the sacrifices that God deserves. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. How many nations do we have in the world? Roughly 195, give or take, maybe a little more. It depends on who you ask. And we have about 7 billion people on the planet. Are we approaching 8 billion? I think we're getting close. There's a lot. If you take the top five armies in the world, according to Atlas, you have a 2 million army, 1.44 million army, 1.3, 1.28, and 900,000 person army, the top five biggest armies on the planet. Now, if you line up all these nations, all these people, all these armies, and you compare it to God, do you know what you get? It's like getting on a scale and you're looking for the dust on your scale. It's so small, it's, it's nothing. It's like the last drop in a bucket and you're like, I know there's another one in here. I'm trying to get it to come out. Would you come out? If you were to stand before any of those armies, we'll pick the weakest one, 900,000 people. How strong would you feel facing all of them? I think we'd all be scared. Even if you had a machine gun, you'd be scared. 
That's a lot of people and a lot of artillery. Yet when God is compared to that, you know what it looks like? Invisible. It's like you can't even see all of those armies. And that's all of them. You can't see them. Where are the 6 million people? I don't know. God is so big and massive and powerful. I can't even see this other so-called power on the earth. Here's his first conclusion in this process. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? It forces you to say what? Nobody. God is incomparable. He says, well, then let's look at an idol. An idol? Well, let's look at this pathetic process that is an idol. A craftsman cast it and the goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. You're gonna take a piece of wood that someone has to carve, another person has to overlay it with gold and decorate it, and then you have to help stand it up and God forbid someone try to knock it over because you'd have to defend it now because it can't defend itself. And you're gonna say that represents God? You can see the foolishness of an idol or creating anything that you think is God. You can't because God is incomparable. How do you take this power and put it into something that we could really design? You can't and we shouldn't. He says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. We're small. We are still important and valuable, but we sure are small. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes, leaders, rulers to nothing and makes the rulers of this earth as emptiness. Scarcely, verse 24, speaking of the rulers, scarcely are they planted into the ground, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest, that is the storm, carries them off like stubble. There's some impressive power and authority in this world. People command armies and countries and can tell people what to do. A lot of power and judgment and things like that. But when you compare it to God, you know what it's like? It's like my little girl who went to the park with me, found a dandelion, picked it up and went, and the wind just took it away. It's, that's so hard to comprehend God's power over the rulers and the nations of this world. How, how is an ant supposed to comprehend the power, the strength of a bodybuilder? How, how are we to comprehend this power, this strength that is God? There's a really satisfying video if you want to watch it. It's a hydraulic press and they just put stuff underneath it and just crush it. And it just keeps doing it. And you never know what's going to be next. It could be crayons. Yesterday I saw those, those uh, little poppy things you can pop back and forth, the kids' toys, pushes it and it turns into like spaghetti and shoots it out. They, they did a tire. I mean, you're like, wow, what are they going to do next? They did a moose bone and he's holding on the moose bone, and, and they're just seeing the kilograms of power, and, 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 and like, when's it gonna break? When's it gonna break? And then eventually it does and just shatters it, and I had to do some math because I don't read kilograms, but it was about 20,000 pounds of, of pressure needed to be applied to snap this bone that was sitting there. That's hard to comprehend that kind of power. The best thing we can do is take something we do know, say that's pretty strong, and now you just have to multiply it forever and say, it just keeps going. 
and just be impressed with that and leave that alone. That's God's power. It is so incredible. God is the king of glory, the king of the world, the king of Israel, an everlasting king. And he's the king over creation as we see. He's the king over the nations and he's the king over the rulers in absolute phenomenal power. Why am I telling you all this? This was the son of God in eternity with God. Now turn with me and watch what the son of God did. Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five. Watch what the king does with his power. Philippians chapter two, verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind is he talking about? A few verses prior, he's talking about selfish ambition, vain conceit. He's talking about humility. And he tells the Philippians, he commands them, you need to have a humble mindset. Think this, think humbly. Let that dictate and shape all of your thinking and all of your life. Be humble. Why is he telling them this? Philippi had a huge problem with honor and status. We know this because of the things they have left behind. They have left their tombstones. They have left one of them. This is a fascinating example. Someone's resume inscribed on stone and it's erected in a place for people to see it. How amazing is that? You ever think about that? What are your wish, your final wishes? I want to have my resume erected so everybody can see it. I mean, that's something. Here's what it says. And you have to bear with it. It's going to feel very Latin. Pubulus Marius Valens, son of Pubulus, from the tribe of Vol... 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 Voltinia, honored with the decorations of a decurion, a deli, also of decurion of Philippi, priest of the divine Antinomius Pius, Dumvir, sponsor of games. There's a lot there, but basically he is showing everybody how great he is through his city achievements. He's really worked his way up in city government, sponsored games. He's got his religious side. He got the status of being a part of a certain city through his, his honor of his dad's name and the family name in there. All that was very important. Status and honor was very important. And Paul writes to the Christians in that city and says, not you Christians, that's not to be you. You're to have a humble mindset where ambition is not about you and vain conceit. It's not about what you're supposed to do. Rather, you're supposed to think others even better than yourself. That's really hard. And I think in large part, that's very close to a potential American mindset in our culture. Maybe not direct, maybe not exact, but I think we, we have the mindset of success and winning. As long as you win, as long as you win, it could be sports, politics, we'll, we'll brush aside your immorality. That's okay. As long as you're the man or the woman or whatever, that's not okay. We need to take into consideration, especially those moral sides of things. And so he gives them the greatest example now to show them it is possible to be humble. You can do it. Here's what he says, verse six. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The son of God, before he became human, he was in the form of God. I think the idea here of form is more speaking of the status and the majesty and the power of God more than it's speaking of his ontological divinity. I think that's implied, 
But I think because of the analogy here, the form, it's speaking of that kingship power. He was in the form reigning as the king of glory with God. And what did he do? He did not count equality. In other words, he didn't count his status or the honor which was his with God as a thing to be grasped, that is to be asserted for his own benefit. He didn't count his status as something he was gonna use to put people down to make himself himself. No, this is what he did. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Keep in mind what position he's emptying himself from. How did he do it? By taking the form of a servant. The son of God, the king of glory, took the form of a servant. Joseph Hellerman, he says that this word servant, Greek word doulos, it simply means slave. I'm gonna use that word because I think it hits home to more of the heart of what he's doing here. Servant we translate, it's a little soft, but slave really I think maybe hits it on the head even more. The son of God became a slave. From one verse, he goes from here, the highest possible place to pretty much the lowest possible place a human being could be. A slave was considered the worst degrading status you could have at this time here in this place. He was born in the likeness of men. We talked about that two weeks ago, so I'm not gonna cover that right now. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. And what did he do in that human body as he became a servant, as he became a slave? He subjected himself to death for us. And then it says this, even death in the most humiliating, degrading, abusive way possible. The cross was designed to do two things, to kill you by asphyxiation, to slowly kill you and take your breath away. Horrible. But you know how they did it? They didn't do it in the corner where nobody could see you. They put you on a cross so everybody could see you. And you could pass by and it says, don't mess with Rome. This will happen to you. And it was shameful. You were a criminal. Cicero, he writes in this time period. And he says, let the cross be far away from the body of a Roman, even from their mind and from their eyes and from their thoughts. Slaves were considered the bottom of society. And here we have the son of God in a human form putting himself in that position, hanging up in a shameful way for all to see. Joseph Hellerman, he describes this as these verses take us to the deepest, darkest hellhole of human history to see the unspeakable abuse, horrific tragedy, and shame that Jesus Christ took. Why did he do that? For you, for me, for our children. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? But the story doesn't end there. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see, he died, but he also rose from the dead. He started the new creation so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And now as resurrected Lord, he is back in his glory as king with the Father, but he has done it in such a way where now you can be received into the family of God 
and you can become an exalted child of God and a member of God's family forgiven of your sins. Does God love you? Has God done everything possible to rescue you? Yeah. And what does he require of you? To bow your knee in faith. You will bow your knee. The verse says it. Everybody will confess Jesus as Lord. You can do it now and be saved, or you can do it on judgment day, and you will still pay for your sins. I plead and beg that you would believe today. Now, Jesus was not only a servant and a slave in his death, he also did this in his whole life. In John 13, he put a towel around his waist. He takes the form of a servant and he gets on his knees and he washes the feet, the dirty, dusty feet of men. And the feet aren't so bad. You know what's worse than their feet? It's their hearts. One of them is about to betray him for money. The others are about, one's about to deny him and call curses on himself. I don't know this guy. I swear I don't know him. Others are going to abandon him, yet he still washes their feet. In another episode in Matthew 20, I'm gonna playfully describe the scene to you, so bear with me. The disciples are talking, dude, I'm gonna be on the right side. Dude, you can be on the left side and we'll be with the king and we'll be the men in the kingdom. This will be so cool. And Jesus, in a sense, what are you guys talking about? Oh, you wanna be great? You wanna be first? Get a piece of paper, get a pen. I got you. You ready for this? Write it down. Okay, Jesus, what is it? Become a slave. What? You wanna be first? Become a servant. What? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. Jesus, what are you talking about? Guys, I think he said servant. Is that what he said? Did I? Could you ask him again? Because I'm not really sure. You ask him again. If you were to write on a piece of paper, my greatest life, what would you put? What would be your greatest life? Winning, being recognized, incredible fame, like whatever it was. If you don't have on that piece of paper, be a servant, it's not the greatest life you can live. Because the greatest life you can live is one as a child of God, believing in Jesus, who now serves people for the glory of his name. You want to be great? Be a servant. Our American mindset is twisted. This is not the American mindset. The mindset has to be serve. That's greatness. It doesn't look great, but it is. And God sees that and God is pleased when we serve by faith. Another episode in Jesus's life, Mark chapter two, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. He was, tax collectors were not, they were not cool. People didn't like them because they took money from their people and they gave it, they're still not, <laughs> and they took money from their people and they gave it to Rome and maybe even skinned some off the top. Can you imagine someone in your own household taking taxes out of your wallet and then going and giving it to the government? You'd be like, dude, what are you doing? Get out of my wallet. You can imagine how they would feel. And Jesus is eating with these guys. Eating with someone shows some form of association with them. Why are you doing this? Why are you associating with them? And he tells them, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And Jesus came and he served his disciples and he served the, the sick. He served these men and these women who were considered outcasts of society. 
It is incredible what our Lord has done. And you put it all together and we see that we have the son of God and in order to be our Messiah, to fulfill the father's will, to be what we needed, he became a servant, he became a slave. He washed men's feet and women's feet. He, he associated with them. He taught them how to be great and gave them the example of his life. And then he died for sinners in their place as the servant and slave of all. It's, it's hard to say anything else after this. It just puts us in an unspeakable place of the only thing I can do is praise you now. How do we respond to this? As we approach Christmas, which we're really there, we're close guys. Any kids in the room? We're really close, exciting time. But even more exciting than Christmas morning and presents, it's remembering the son of God. And we remember what he has made you this Christmas. For those of you who believe, what has he made you? An exalted child of God. No greater position you could have. But you remember, I want you to remember what it cost him. It cost the king to become a slave and a servant for us. Let us also walk out and do what Paul said and have the mindset of Jesus Christ being humble. Thinking about others more than ourselves. Thinking, how can I serve you? Live the greatest life you could live and serve other people. Let's become servants of all. Amen. Here's what I want to do. We're going to respond in a time of confession, confessing what we believe about our Lord from this passage. You'll see it on the screen. And what I want you to do is I want you to read over that. Take a minute, read over that. And then I'm going to lead us together. And for those of you who believe this, I want you to confess it with me. All right, church family, we're gonna start with number one. And if you believe this, I invite you to confess with me. Go ahead and follow my, my pattern. Okay, number one, Jesus, we believe you are the son of God who was the king of glory from all eternity with God. Number two, Jesus, we believe you are the son of God who became a slave and died a humiliating yet sacrificial death for us. Number three, Jesus, we believe you are God's Messiah and now the exalted Lord of creation. And let's do the thank you together. Thank you, Lord, for becoming the Christ we needed. We praise you to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing the truth, acting out and living the truth of becoming a slave in your, uh, through Jesus, your son, to save us from our sins. Lord, we exalt you. We praise you. We celebrate this time for your sake, amazing love, how can it be that you, our King, would die for us? Lord, bless us to be your humble servants, to follow the grace of Christ. We fall so short in humility. Have mercy, help us, and now we praise you. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus, amen.